is ADH-TV. I'm David Flint, and the program is Save the Nation. And today we have a special guest, Chris Roth, member of the Legislative Council, who graduated in economics and has a postgraduate degree in management and has published with Connor Court so that viewers know where to go in relation to Connor Court. And there are two books in which he's published. One is The Forgotten People Updated and the other is Markets and Prosperity. So those can be looked at, as I say, through Connor Court. Chris has had a stellar career in the Liberal Party. He's on the Commonwealth Day Council and uh, in his CV, he also reveals that he's a parishioner at, uh, I think, Sydney's only Anglo-Catholic church, Christchurch St Lawrence. Welcome, Chris. Thank you for having me, David. And it's nice to see someone so young in Parliament these <laughs> days. You are the opposition whip, are you not, in the Legislative Council? That's correct. Recently appointed just after the state election. Well, I was reading about you in The Australian the other day because of what you did in relation to the Premier of New South Wales' decision to stop the uh, screening or mentioning of the coronation, filming of the coronation on the sales of the Opera House. Yeah, that's right. It, it's a pretty bad situation where you have the Premier of New South Wales, Chris Minns, decide to cancel the illumination uh, of the Opera House for the King's coronation. We started asking questions about this in Parliament and the ministers were sidestepping every single one of our questions, both in the chamber and our questions on notice. So I decided to put in a freedom of information request or what in New South Wales is called a GIPA, uh, where the government was compelled to release documents relating to the lighting of the Opera House sales. Those documents came back recently and said that the decision that was made to cancel the coronation uh, lighting of the Opera House was entirely political. And that's just, they're not my words, they're the words that the public servants were using when in discussions amongst themselves that it was essentially a politically motivated decision, not an operational decision to cancel the lighting of the Opera House. The reason given was financial, was it not? That's right. So it's incredibly disingenuous for the Premier to say that it was a financial decision, that somehow the budget couldn't afford $100,000 uh, of funding for the lighting of the sales. But there was an alternate um, situation presented to the Premier where a simple lighting of the Opera House sales in purple, like so many other monuments around the world were lit in purple for the King's coronation, would have only cost $10,000 to do. But the Premier still made the decision to go ahead with cancelling um, the, the lighting of the sales. And it was entirely political. It, it had nothing to do with, with the cost. It was simply that Chris Minns was triggered by the coronation and didn't want it to go ahead. The documents you got seem to be heavily edited. Are they not? Uh, heavily redacted, I would say. Um, yes, they certainly redacted. didn't want us to have all of the information. Uh, but the information that we do have says that it was, um, it was definitely political. It wasn't a, an operational decision. I think it was just essentially a culture war fight that the Premier wanted to pick. Um, 
by saying that, you know, that they don't particularly like the coronation, they don't particularly like our constitutional monarchy, and they made a decision to to cancel the lighting of the Opera House sales for entirely political reasons. It had absolutely nothing to do with cost. I mean, this is a, a premier that is funding the UFC cage fighting in Sydney to the tune of $16 million, but couldn't spend $10,000 for lighting the Opera House sales for the King's coronation. And it's not like the coronation ha happens every year. And the last time it happened was in 1952. Most Australians would not remember the last coronation. Most Australians weren't alive for the last coronation. I think something as simple as $10,000 to light up the Opera House for the coronation of Australia's monarch uh, is entirely an entirely appropriate use of, um, of the government's funds. And uh, the King had been notified that this is what uh, was going to be done in New yes. South Wales. Yes, well, this is one of the things, that's right, this is one of the things that emerged from the documents is that the New South Wales government then had to rather embarrassingly contact Buckingham Palace and inform, uh, inform His Majesty that the lighting of the Opera House sales would not be going ahead. Uh, for the coronation. So a rather embarrassing decision, but they decided to press ahead with it uh, nevertheless. I think it was just a political stunt in the end. If you look at uh, foreign television on occasions, for example, on the, uh, the end of the year, at the end of the year, the celebrations to mark the new year, if you look at French television, for example, they often start with Sydney, what's happening in Sydney because of the time difference and the beauty of the harbour and so on. Sydney comes up and I would have thought that had uh, the Opera House been illuminated, it would have been seen all around the world. As a, Once they were reporting on the coronation, they would have also reported on how it was being seen around the world and Sydney is always now seen as the place where, for example, you start the new year. Yeah, absolutely. I think it would have been a good thing for Sydney. Um, it would have put us uh, on the international stage. Um, and I think that if you look at the other reasons that the Opera House has been lit up in the past for things like Indian Independence Day or, or Greek National Day or, or various sporting matches, um, you know, we, we, it's entirely appropriate that the last time that uh, we had a coronation was decades ago. It's entirely appropriate to light up the Opera House sales uh, for the King's coronation, given all of the other multitude of events where, where, where the Opera House has been lit up. I think it would have put Sydney uh, on the map. Um, I think it would have reminded people internationally of how beautiful our harbour is, how beautiful uh, the Sydney Opera House is. Um, and, and the Harbour Bridge and would have encouraged people to, to come to such a beautiful city as Sydney. So he damaged uh, the tourist potential in a way. Uh, they've been, uh, it's been illuminated, has it not? I think uh, you sought a comparison with the illumination in relation to the visit to Sydney of the Indian Prime Minister. Yes, it's quite a bizarre scenario where when the Indian uh, Prime Minister comes to Australia, uh, the Opera House uh, is lit up for that occasion, but for the coronation of our very own monarch, it is not. Um, it's quite a bizarre set of circumstances. I don't know uh, why 
that decision was made, except to say that it's probably just a confected culture war uh, by a woke men's Labor government. There's no other explanation why they would cancel uh, the lighting of the Opera House. Yes, and uh, this is uh, something which uh, the federal government has indicated if the voice referendum is won, that they will be introducing a referendum, a second referendum to turn Australia into a republic. Do you think that had any, any impression or effect on the Premier? Well, the Labor Party in New South Wales Parliament and federally is certainly littered with Republicans. So I'm sure it was definitely a part of their decision-making uh, process. Um, they don't like displays of our constitutional monarchy in any in any form at all. Um, they try to suppress uh, uh, any notion of constitutional monarchy where they can. Um, and I think that it was just part of that culture war that they're trying to fight within within Australia. And I think that is obviously the long term aim uh, of the Labor Party in Australia is to move towards a republic. But um, they haven't had the guts now for. Uh, for a long time to to bring up a, a new a renewed push for a republic referendum because I think they know that they would lose the vote if they did. Yes, I uh, I suspect that the premier has suffered to an extent in his standing in relation to this. Uh, I was listening to Two GB, the which is to some of our viewers who may not know it, it's the leading talkback station in Sydney in the mornings and there were a number of people who were ringing up and they were saying, many of them were saying, and I'm sure many were honest, that they were Labor voters, that they had voted for him and that they were seriously disappointed by this because they, they thought universally it was a petty thing to do. Mm. It was it was entirely abrupt because no one knew that that the cancellation was coming um, after it had been well announced to uh, to Australia. It was certainly disrespectful um, to the king um, and to our system of constitutional monarchy. Um, and I also think it was unpatriotic. I think that the the Minns government should explain why they went ahead with such an abrupt disrespect and unpatriotic move as, as the cancellation uh, was. The, the interesting thing was that a, a newspaper like The Australian published this. The Australian is essentially a Republican newspaper. They took a very strong, they were the leading, the leading Republican outlet in uh, 1999. You're too young to remember that, of course. <laughs> but in 1999, they, they were the flag bearers. But they've come out, they, they had a, a long story about it and they pointed to the problems that, uh, or the, the links that uh, would have affected this, particularly Labor's plan to establish a republic. But the editorial was also very strong and clearly condemning this as not really a very sensible thing to do. Yeah, that, that's right. And I think there's just no mood for change at the moment on, on a republic at all. I mean, you know, Albanese could have, if he wanted to, having recently been elected as Prime Minister, decide that his, the referendum that he would champion in his first term of government would be a republic, but instead he decided to go down the path of pushing for a constitutionally enshrined voice. 
um, showing that it probably isn't the priority uh, from a lot of Australians. Otherwise, if it was so overwhelmingly popular, he probably would have put up a republic um, referendum. Uh, but I think The Australian was entirely appropriate to run uh, front page and the editorial uh, on this issue because I think people are quite upset about the way that Chris Minns handled it. We used to have referendums more often than we do now. I think a lot has to do with changed interpretations of the Constitution by the High Court. But uh, I went through the number of times in the referendums, I put it into a book, the number of times that referendums have been repeated. And I found that in the past, some referendums have been, the, the question rather, has been repeated. And uh, there's been an initial rejection by the Australian public, and then the government has tried to do it again. And sometimes they've been repeated, it's hard to believe this, up to five times. And <laughs> what I was able to establish is that when Australians say no, they mean no. I could not find mm. one case where there was a similar referendum to the one which was rejected where the Australians changed their mind. At the constitutional... Well, things like conscription, I think things like conscription or banning the Communist Party were uh, in the end just shelved by the government of the day um, and not relitigated um, uh, to the point of success. And uh, the Communist Party one was a, a liberal referendum, was it not? Was the, the two... <laughs> yes. The right. two uh, ones relating to conscription were plebiscites in that they were asking the people something which the government of the day could have done anyway, but they thought it prudent to seek the advice of the populace. Uh, mm. So right. you're, you are, may I ask, you are a, a constitutional monarchist, are you not? I think you said that in, uh, yes. in your maiden <laughs> speech. It's now called, uh, what is correct. it, a first yeah. speech? or? An initial, what's it, what's it called yes, I think they, they either call it a first speech or, a, or an inaugural speech. I think it's more politically correct to use that language, but I don't mind if you call it a maiden speech. <laughs> you, you won't take me to some discrimination authority. No, no, there won't be a tribunal yes. to, uh, to rule over you. <laughs> may, may I ask you one thing about... Uh, about your speech, you said you're a liberal in the tradition of John Stuart Mill, John Locke, Edmund Burke, and Adam Smith. Adam Smith. What did you mean by that? Uh, to me, I think that um, that I believe in the individual. I believe in freedom. I think that in the end, I sort of believe in the harm principle that was championed by John Stuart Mill, that we should be free to do whatever we want free from government interference, so long as we do not harm the life, liberty or property of someone else. So I'm very sceptical about big government, very sceptical about in infringements on our rights and, and liberties, uh, things like higher taxes, uh, things like increased regulation um, uh, will always sit quite uncomfortably with me. I think we should be able to do what we want so long as we don't harm someone else. Well, that seems to be admirable, and I'm sure there would be a lot of people who would support you. Governments seem to be so determined to regulate every detail of our lives. Uh, which brings me to a matter which is currently before us, and that is the voice referendum. Mm. What's your position on the voice referendum, Chris? 
So I'm um, cautiously opposed to the voice. Um, I think that uh, I don't come at the voice issue as a culture warrior or as a firebrand populist, but more as a Burkean conservative, which I think I also mentioned in my uh, inaugural speech, someone that is very cautious about changes to our constitution. And I think that the onus of proof is always on the proponents of the change. They need to try and convince us, the people who are um, hesitant, uh, why the change should take place. It's not for the people that are saying that we need the status quo to convince the electorate of why we need to keep the status quo. It's up to those seeking the change to, uh, the onus of proof is essentially on them. So for me, the issue of the voice is that I'm incredibly worried about the unintended consequences of the voice being enshrined in the constitution, how future high courts might interpret the new powers that are uh, that will be enshrined in the constitution. And for those reasons, I think that um, I'll be voting no on the 14th of October. This will be the first new chapter in the constitution if it is adopted. We've never had a new chapter. Curiously, I, I actually counted the words, uh, or at least my computer counted the words for me, and I found it was half the size of the present smallest chapter. And the present smallest chapter is the miscellaneous chapter. So we're not being told very much in this chapter, but uh, I fear with you as to how the High Court would handle this, particularly when it comes with the status of a separate new chapter, they will draw a lot of conclusions, I would have thought, from that. Yeah, I, I think that we're being asked to vote for something that we don't really have any detail on. Like, I would like to know, for instance, what powers and functions the voice uh, will have. I would like to know how many representatives to the voice there will be. How are you eligible to stand for office? Who is eligible to vote for those representatives? We don't have any of that information. And I think that uh, Anthony Albanese is treating the Australian public like mugs by not giving them that information. To vote for something that we don't have any detail on um, is, is incredibly unfair to the Australian people. Yes, uh, there's been a debate, debate, hasn't there, as to how many pages the Uluru Statement is. And uh, <laughs> when, uh, when Mr Albanese was asked, had he read the other pages of the Uluru Statements, if it is more than one page, he said on Melbourne Radio that he had not, and why should I? And uh, this is the government which is telling us that if you want to find out the detail, we can always read it in the report to the uh, Morrison government on having something like a voice. Yes, yeah, so I think they need to convince the Australian electorate uh, why the voice is necessary. It shouldn't be up to people to have to painstakingly, uh, you know, go through various reports from, from years ago to form their own opinion. As I said before, the onus of proof is on them. It's not on the people saying, let's keep the status quo. I also think that, you know, I'm, I'm here today in uh, New South Wales Parliament and we'll be voting on a whole range of different bills. I am given as a legislator incredible um, amounts of detail on the various bills that I have to vote on. And we'll be going down on various divisions today. 
um, and we've, we're given briefings, we're, we're given information, we know exactly what we're voting on as we walk into that chamber. But the Australian people don't know what they're voting for. So it's, in, it's an incredibly different standard of the way we treat our legislators on minor, incredibly minor bills that we'll be voting on later today in New South Wales Parliament compared to the insignificant amount of detail that we're being given on the most important uh, consequential change to our constitution uh, probably since World War II. I don't expect you to comment on this, but um, one of the failings during COVID, I thought, was that uh, upper houses weren't allowed the traditional scrutiny that they normally have. They certainly had in uh, Britain before the House of Lords was changed. And they weren't allowed the scrutiny that they should have had over regulations, including the power to disallow them. And uh, mm. I think that's also being looked at in the Senate. But if you have a, a, a two-chamber parliament, one would have thought that when regulations are made, they should also have the power to disallow regulations because that is effectively making laws and you are the upper house. That would be my well, view. We actually had a disallowance. Well, I agree with you. We, we had a disallowance motion just this week in the Legislative Council on a regulation sought by the ICAC to increase their power uh, to essentially use um, surveillance or, or footage recordings um, that has been illegally obtained in their, um, in their investigations. The coalition, um, together with some of the crossbench, determined that we thought that was a bridge too far um, and we wanted to provide, we thought that that should be done via legislation, not via regulation, um, but we lost that vote. But the point remains that upper houses do have and should have um, an ability to disallow regulations when they think, when the upper house is of the view that various regulations impinge on the rights and freedoms of people and they should be debated. That probably wasn't done enough during COVID, but I think that um, the reality is that an, a, a powerful upper house is necessary against the tyranny of majority that could very well happen um, by a single party having an absolute majority in the in the lower house. I assume you don't want to go back to uh, WC Wentworth and have a, an upper house which is effectively uh, one occupied by an hereditary monarchy. <laughs> the Bunyip aristocracy. <laughs> uh, I think our upper house in New South Wales is it works incredibly well. You have eight-year terms rather than four. Um, you don't have electorates or, or regions. Um, you have a very strict uh, or stringent committee system um, and budget estimates. Um, it is a house of review and it works, it works incredibly well. Um, we have various powers to, to call for, for papers um, and the government of the day almost never has a majority in the Legislative Council in New South Wales, just as they've almost never had a majority in the Senate. Only very on very rare occasions uh, have they. So it does genuinely act as a house of review. And I think it's very important. I think that bicameralism works incredibly well in Australia and it, sh it certainly should be preserved. And it should be restored to Queensland, I would think. Where it was, ta it was <laughs> taken away. It was a huge mistake. Yes, and it was taken away after the people voted against it being taken away. It's quite mm -hmm. an extraordinary thing that was done in Queensland. 
But uh, mm. I, I, I'm not sure that Neville Rand realised what he was doing when he established the current form of the Legislative Council because I think the, the quota, the size of the quota is excellent because it does allow for minority views to come into the council, which doesn't happen in many other houses. That's right. You only need a few percent of the vote to get a member of the Legislative Council elected in New South Wales because we have 42 members of our chamber, 21 of them up at each time. And because of a proportional representational quota system, you can get elected with only a few percent of, of the vote. So it brings different voices into the upper house that you wouldn't have in the lower house, uh, like the Liberal Democrats with John Ruddick, uh, like uh, Mark Latham, for instance, um, on the right, um, but then also on the left, uh, like at the Animal Justice Party or the Legalised Cannabis Party. Not saying that I necessarily <laughs> agree with them on on a lot, but um, but they certainly represent a few percent of the of the electorate, and now they have representation in our state parliament. And these would be views which would never emerge in the lower house. Yeah, they would never have the ability to win tens of thousands of votes in a single uh, electorate. Uh, but they have an important voice um, within our uh, electoral system. Um, and I think some of them are actually doing quite a good job. Do you think it should be easier for new states to be formed? <laughs> uh, look, I think that if you look at um, Australia compared to the United States, for instance, where we have six very large states, um, whereas in the US they have they have 50, is that you get a real sense in the US of what I would call competitive federalism, where the states really compete against each other for people, for new businesses, um, and you see people relocating from, um, from various high-taxing states like California, for instance, to low-taxing states like Florida. Um, and I think that's a very good thing. But in Australia, because we have only six very large states, and because of various problems over time, like not to get too technical, but, you know, vertical fiscal imbalance and horizontal fiscal equalisation. Now I've probably bored all of your all of your listeners. But um, I think that we don't have that sense of competitive federalism in Australia. New states having a, a series of smaller states probably would help address that. And certainly... The Constitution, I don't need to lecture you on the Constitution, Professor Flint, you know far more than me, but mm -hmm. certainly the Constitution allows for new states to be created, as it does allow for New Zealand to become a state of Australia as well, should mm. they wish. The weakness in the Constitution is that the existing state parliament has to approve. And uh, I'm old enough to remember the, the referendum which was finally put in New South Wales the country party was very much in favour of it and the Askin government eventually agreed. And this was for the new state of New England, but when they put it, they, they took the boundaries down to include Newcastle, which is a strong Labour area, which was very much against a new state, and that meant that the new state was defeated. It was very clever, yeah. but it wasn't exactly what the country party wanted when they wanted uh, the new state of New England. Uh, you have uh, some matters on your agenda now, don't you? You have the upcoming state budget. Do you see anything of particular interest there? 
Yeah, so the state budget will be released on Tuesday next week. Um, we're all we have all been eagerly awaiting um, its arrival. I think that where we're at in New South Wales is that we handed over when we were in power for twelve years um, in the Liberal National Party. We handed over some of the best set of books uh, ever of any state government. We have emerged from the COVID pandemic in New South Wales in a far better position than the other states because we went into the pandemic in a far better position than the other states. No net debt, surpluses as far as the eye could see. Um, and that makes it a lot easier for the uh, MINS government to come back to surplus. But the thing that we are very worried about is that they have announced that they will be removing the public sector wages cap. The state budget, um, over 40% of the state government's expenditure is public sector workers, uh, nurses, teachers, train drivers, bu various bureaucrats take up a huge proportion of the budget. One thing that we were able to do when we were in government was to keep expenses under control by having a cap on public sector wages. If you abolish that cap and let wages grow exponentially out of control, you will essentially bankrupt uh, the state government. Um, and that's why under the previous Labor government, under Carr and Yammer and Reese and Keneally, almost nothing was built. Uh, and you had, you know, various ministers cancelling projects because they couldn't afford to build new road or rail projects because they had far too many uh, expenses or outlays from public sector wages. So we will be looking at that very carefully. As an example, if you increase public sector wages by half a percent, so just a half a percent increase in what you pay um, public servants, that equates to about $618 million. So every half a percent is a huge cost uh, to the budget. So we'll be looking at that very carefully on Tuesday to see if the Minns Labor government has essentially just capitulated to the trade union bosses. One of the, uh, one of the failings in the Australian Federation, compared with other federations, and it relates to budgets, is that uh, the federal government takes about 80% of all taxes and then gives back mm. half of that to the states with instructions on how to spend it. Whereas in most other federations, the amount taken is much smaller by the central government and there's much more independence in relation to taxation. Uh, obviously, this can't be changed overnight, but would you, would you like to see states more independent of the Commonwealth in terms of uh, their income? I, I think I think so because, and this is uh, the book that you mentioned, Markets and Prosperity, two of the taxes that I spoke about uh, in urgent need of repeal are levied at a state uh, level, which is payroll tax and stamp duty, two of the most inefficient taxes in the Commonwealth. But state governments have been addicted. They've become addicted to these two incredibly inefficient taxes because all of the um, taxation powers of income tax and company tax some of the big tax uh, taxes that governments collect in Australia are collected by the federal government. Um, and what you have essentially is the state government still primarily as the service and infrastructure providers of health, of education, of road, of rail, but 
um, most of the taxes being collected by the federal government. So it does create this huge imbalance between the big taxing feds and the uh, big spending states, and it doesn't work particularly well. I think it's interesting to see other examples around the world and go, going back to the competitive federalism model of, of the United States. They have different sales taxes and income taxes depending on uh, state, state by state. Um, so people can relocate from a high taxing state to a low taxing state uh, should, should they wish. But I think it is a huge problem in our federation um, that, um, that states are essentially beholden to, to the feds on taxation. You mentioned uh, the advantages of a competitive federalism, and I agree with you entirely. I noticed that uh, the new head of the Productivity Commission appointed by the Albanese government is calling for a return to death duties under a different name. Do you think that's something that the Liberal Party would be supporting? I don't think so. I think that any government that goes down the path of trying for death duties would be met with total, uh, complete failure at the polls. Um, you only have to look back to the 2019 election with uh, Bill Shorten, not proposing uh, death duties, but certainly proposing uh, taxation changes uh, on franking credits and negative gearing that started to make people incredibly nervous that maybe the next step after that would be death duties. So I don't think that any government um, in Australia, Liberal or Labor, um, will, uh, will actually look at death duties in the future. But what I would say is that um, under a Liberal government, whether it's state or federally, taxes will always be lower than under a Labor government that's beholden to uh, trade union bosses and addicted to, to new spending. Yes, uh, the abolition of death duties in Australia was a, a magnificent example of competitive federalism when Sir Joe Bielke-Peterson, against the advice of his own treasurer and against public service advice, abolished death duties. Curiously, elderly people tended to move or tried to, a lot of them tried to move to Queensland because for some reason they preferred to leave their estates to their families rather than leave a substantial chunk to the state government. And uh, within a couple of years, most other states had, because of the movement, had abolished death duties. It was a wonderful example of competitive federalism. It does really work. You're also very much concerned by industrial relations, are you not, Chris? Yeah, I think uh, I am. I think both state and federally. I think at a state level, I've already touched on the fact that this new Min's Labor government are essentially capitulating to the demands of trade union bosses by um, drastically increasing public sector wages, which means a huge cost to, to the budget. Um, that's one thing that I'm certainly very concerned about. At a federal level, they're pushing ahead with their own changes, which will have impacts on um, our state regulatory regime um, as well. But I would have thought that at a time when productivity growth is incredibly low um, and at a time when we need to make 
Australia more productive in order to get through the economic headwinds uh, ahead, now perhaps is not the best time to be introducing the changes that the Albanese government is proposing. I think that young people in particular um, like the flexibility of being a casual, um, of working in the gig economy, and that what you have under the Albanese government is essentially going back to the 1970s, going back to a pre-Hawke and Keating era um, when you had an incredibly inflexible, unproductive labour market system where the trade unions dominated. Um, so in many ways, the Albanese government is more like the Whitlam government and far less like the Hawke and Keating government in terms of the way that they see the economy. And as we started, did we not over the Premier's decision to cancel the illumination of the Opera House for the coronation. And uh, you indicated, uh, you certainly did in your maiden speech, that you were a constitutional monarchist. You like that pattern, that model, do you? That is of the governor appointed in a similar way to a judge being appointed by the king on the advice of the Premier and the bicameral system with the Westminster system. This is the, this is the sort of government that you like. You wouldn't like that changed, I assume. I, I don't think that by having an elected uh, governor or governor general or, or president or some new term like that would lead to a more stable democracy. I think that you'd create another um, centre of power, a sort of rival court, if you would, where you have a, an elected president and then and then an elected prime minister, where they would constantly be battling each other for for power and for relevancy. I think that what we do like, what Australians do like about our system, is that the politics of the day is handled by the prime minister and the premier and in the parliament, but that our governor and our governor general are essentially above politics, that they don't enter into the political fray. They have immense power, very rarely ever used, but immense power, um, and, uh, but they're essentially apolitical and above the fray of, of everyday politics. And I think that we are the envy of the world in terms of one of the most stable, uh, most effective democracies anywhere in the, in the world, and one of the oldest democracies as well. People wouldn't actually realise just how old um, a democracy Australia is compared to some of the uh, more ancient political systems around the world. But what you've seen is various political systems in, in Europe and in Asia and in Latin America be subject to constant uh, coups or ripping up their constitution and starting again. Ours has worked incredibly effectively since 1901. Um, and I wouldn't want to see changes uh, to that unless we're absolutely convinced that it's in the best interest of Australia. I don't think the voice is. I don't think that becoming a republic is. I think that our system works incredibly well the way it is. What a wise note to end on from one so young. Chris, thank <laughs> you very much. You've been very generous and uh, I wish you well. Great, thank you. Thanks so much. This is ADH TV. I'm David Flint and the program is Save the Nation. And uh, the producer is Charlie Noble. Until next time.